0: Hi folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. You can also find our lessons over at Apple Podcasts, so make sure you subscribe to our podcast channel, and that way you can take the teaching with you when you're on the go. Now, we always include a good deal of information in our lessons, and the reason I do this is to help you be able to go out and investigate the cultural context on your own, which is really the best way to learn. The downside, of course, is it's a lot of information at one time. So it's always helpful when you're hearing something, maybe new about the culture, to listen to it a second or a third time. It's kind of like, you know, if you've ever watched a movie the second or third time around, you see things that you didn't see the first time around. So listening to a teaching a second or third time, you'll always see more information rise to the top that you didn't see the first time around because you have a general understanding that helps that information land. If you listen to the podcast first and then need to see a picture, well, you can always come back to YouTube to find the visual. Seeing visuals always helps to make your learning more concrete. That's why I try to include as many photos as possible. So go over, subscribe to our Fig Tree Ministries podcast over at Apple Podcasts, and enjoy today's lesson. exciting to be back we have a fresh canvas in front of us of 2021 so we're going to get to it and create our own reality of goodness ahead of us despite what's happening in the world and that's part of what i want to do over the next few weeks is talk about take this christmas story and move it forward and try to and look at some ways we can apply this to our own lives So I actually do have an agenda of where I'm going with the Christmas story, although sometimes I don't always know the details of the agenda. I know the direction I'm heading. So we'll see what we can do about pulling more out of the Christmas story than maybe we have in the past, and then see how does that apply to our lives at any point in time. One of the things that we're going to do is next week we'll look at a A mystical approach to the Christmas story. This is a mystic from the 13th century, named Meister Eckhart. I'll show you him at the end of today, and then we want to extend this idea to what does it mean to be a Christian, a little Christ, or Christ means anointed one. You're a little anointed one. So what does that mean in your life? How do we live out being a little Christ Christian in the world? So that's where we'll be going in the next few weeks. God willing. Okay, so what you see on your screen, this is a temple. I've showed you this picture at some point in the past. Well, it's not a temple. It's the base of a temple that Herod the Great, who was the king of the Jews, built for Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor who gave Herod his power. Now, there's three of them. There's three temples in Israel. So, in Jesus' day, you had three temples to the emperor who thought of himself as divine and you can imagine the how that ruffled the feathers of the jews to have that those temples inside your land that god gave you so the name of the city the ancient name of the city we know it from your bible samaria so samaria was the capital of the northern tribes, the northern kingdom, and so this is at the ancient city of Samaria, and by the first century, Herod the Great had renamed the city, and he called it Sebastia.
1: Now, you can spell it different ways. Sebastia is Greek. It means the worshipped one, or venerated. The Latin word is Augustus, which is the title of Caesar Augustus. So King Herod not only
0: built a temple to Caesar Augustus, he named the city, he named the city Sebastia, which also is the, is the Greek word for Augustus, the venerated one. So you can see how much he's kissing up to Caesar Augustus. What had happened, it's an interesting story just briefly about some history. When Herod the Great first came to power sometime around 40 BC, there was no empire yet. It was divided, and the eastern half was, fell under Mark Antony. Mark Antony was the one who dated Cleopatra. So the eastern half, where Israel is, was under Mark Antony, and um, Herod the Great put his allegiance with Mark Antony. Well, then Caesar Augustus wins a battle, well, that's awkward. So now you're the king of of Judea, and you've pledged your allegiance to the guy who lost. So Herod the Great rushes off to Rome and pleads his case with Caesar Augustus, the new emperor, because now it's an empire, to say, keep me as your king. And uh, the funny part is, he says, uh, Herod essentially says, hey, look, um, yeah, I was loyal to the guy who was your opposition. But notice how loyal I was. And if I was that loyal to him, imagine how much I'll be loyal to you. So Augustus said, okay, you can be king. And of course, then Herod the Great goes back and he builds three temples to Caesar Augustus because he's got to show his loyalty and why he wants to remain king. So it's kind of a funny story. Anyways, so that what we what we're looking at was a temple to Caesar Augustus and of course Herod the Great, the king at the time of Jesus' birth is making sure that Herod or uh, that Augustus knows that he's loyal to him while he's in power. So we'll talk more about that towards the end of it, but I just wanted to give you some background
1: about Herod the Great and Caesar Augustus. Okay, so we're still on the Christmas story. What we did a couple weeks ago was we, we were looking at... We want to look at the
0: Christmas story as closely as possible to the context of the first century. Uh, the more we abstract Bible stories out of their original context, it's not like, you know, God's not upset. He doesn't punish us because we got it wrong, or we, we interpreted it abstractly. What we might miss are some, some fundamental things that are going on in the text that once you place it back into that context, they kind of jump out at you. You see them and you see the, the Bible in a new light once you understand the surrounding context. Because there's a very powerful message going on here, which is what we want We explored a little bit last time and we'll explore today. A reference I shared with you last week was this book, Kenneth Bailey. Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes. He was a Presbyterian minister and served the majority of his life living in the East. And so he, what he wants to do is take all these Bible stories and it, as he says, you know, dust the barnacles off them that have kind of grown over the years. So that's a, it's a great book, foundational for understanding some Eastern thought and the way that the Bible stories fit into the East. So we talked last time we have two variations from the Bible. Uh, we have Luke's account of the Christmas story, and that's where we're at today. And then you have Matthew's account of the Christmas story, or I'm sorry, yeah, the the, the narrative of the birth of Jesus. And then what has happened over the years is there was a writing, um, because Luke and Matthew don't give us 100% of the details, so our tendency is, is to try to fill in the details, and, Jews do that to the Old Testament, we do it to the New Testament, because God doesn't give us every single detail. In about 200 AD, you have a document called the Infancy Gospel of James. Now, it's not written by James, but they're trying to take James's name. And if you read that, it's a big conflation and adding all of this dramatic detail to the birth narrative. And sometimes when we tell the story of Jesus, We're even pulling from those details rather than only from the biblical text. So anyways, what we want to do is go back to the biblical text and say, just let's look at what's there in Luke's account or in Matthew's account and try to get rid of the the noise that's been added over 2,000 years of retelling the story. Okay, so this is what we were doing last week. One of the things we noted is that there's something common about the nature of the birth. Now it's not common that there was an immaculate conception, that's not common. The common part was that they went to Bethlehem. They would have been welcomed in because that's the eastern way when there's a pregnant woman you welcome them in. We noticed last week, there or 2 weeks ago, there was no innkeeper who who turned them away. Rather, first century homes have the animal stables built into the home so they're in a home of some sort you have family living space then somewhere attached to that home near the entrance is going to be your animal stable so you have an animal stable the mangers are the rock structures that you would then put the food in for the animals so either the house was too small or the room, the extra room in the house, was somehow taken. My conclusion was the house is probably a very small house, because if there's any guest room and you have a pregnant woman, everybody's going to be giving up that room for the, for the, the pregnant woman. That's, that's hospitality. So we'd have to say it's probably a very small house, which le- lends to the story, because in God's kingdom, the king is born at the lowest level of society. Not in a palace, and that's part of god's kingdom. It's the opposite of the way we think
1: about the next king okay so it's a it's a common he's he's born as everyday person,
0: obviously he's the king, but the the, the way that the story's told and what where we get tripped up is this idea of guest room that word Cataluma gets translated in that's an likely an incorrect translation. It would be better as guest room. There was no room in the guest room, because Luke also uses that word for guest room. So anyways, all it does is try to put back that, that story back into the context of the first century to say, we have something at the lowest rung of the community, a king is being born, which is going to be a significant factor. And then what we wanted to do because this goes into our historical context is we say well let's compare that to something that's right there in Bethlehem that has to do with the, the king of the Jews Herod the great. And so the picture you're looking at in the distance is Bethlehem and the and the mountain or the hill that I'm standing on is this hill right here and that's called the Herodium. This was a Massive, at the time, the largest palace structure in the world, built by Herod the Great. There's a fortress that would have extended above that cone. There were palace structures all around the base of it. This is a massive engineering job. Tunnels everywhere because it's built into the mountains. So this was significant. And that's what you want to do is you want to place the birth of Jesus to say, okay, he's born at the lowest rung of society. And that's going to be God's king rather than the four miles away, this palace fortress of the king where everybody would expect the birth of a king to be set. So that's a great thing you can juxtapose. Again, it's cultural, so we don't necessarily recognize that that exists. But this would have dominated the area around Bethlehem, and it was fairly new within 20 years of Jesus being born. So now we can make a great comparison, because Herod the Great, when Caesar Augustus, or I'm sorry, when Rome made him king over Judea,
1: they called him the king of the Jews. So Herod the Great, according to the worldly standards, was king of the
0: Jews. In the Jesus story, Matthew, and I'll just give you the the verses right there, we're not going to look at it. But you all know the magi show up to King Herod and they say, hey, where's the king, the one born king of the Jews? Well, what do you think Herod thought of that? That's a that's fundamentally, it undermines the political structure of his kingship. Because they're saying, hey, we 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 recognize there's another person born who's king, which means Herod, you're not it. Now tell a politician they're not it and watch their ire come out. So Matthew starts, where's the one born king of the Jews? Then all the Gospels end, for instance, in Luke, when Jesus is hung on the cross, what's the sign say above, above him on the cross? Here's the king of the Jews. So you have the, all the Gospel stories are bracketed by this idea of a king being born, or the fulfillment of a king coming into power and it's radical because that undermines everything about Rome. It's a, it's a very political message and we often don't read politics. It's like we got well we have our religion over here and our politics over there. It's like nope. No you don't because you live in a world where man will call himself king and you've got to now decide who's the real king. So this is what we did last week. We said, okay, you know, the king, in man's kingdom, you have King Herod. In God's kingdom, you have King Jesus. So Christ means the anointed one, and kings were anointed by a prophet. So he's Jesus, the Christ, or King Jesus. And you know, kings are supposed to represent the people. But that's not, all, that's not often what happens, right? All too often, the king makes himself wealthy, or only represents the wealthy and the powerful at the cost of everybody else. But that's not God's kingdom, right? So when Jesus shows up, he shows up at the most common level of society, and he's there for all humanity. And that's a significant piece to see how, this, how his kingdom's going out. Jesus has to continually tell his disciples, my kingdom's not like the kingdoms of the world. Don't think like that. It's everything's upside down in the kingdom of God, compared to what the world says. So, it's not about power, it's not about getting as much land, it's about forgiving your, your enemy. That brings about the kingdom of God. Okay, that was all review, but it's key, because we have a king right next to where Jesus was born, and we want to compare those two. Now, the other part, as I started with, is you have another king,
1: Caesar Augustus. He's the Roman emperor. So we want to compare, now I'm on number five
0: if you have your sheet out, Caesar Augustus. He's declared Augustus, the worshipped one, the venerated one. And so now you have another comparison to make, and the reason we have that comparison is because now you can turn in your Bible. If you have your Bible, open it up to Luke 2, verse 1. Because Luke 2, verse 1, Luke includes the
1: important detail. As he opens this narrative about Jesus about Jesus birth he opens his narrative telling you who's in charge in those days Caesar Augustus and you know you think about Caesar Augustus sitting over in
0: Rome waving his hand issues a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, right? How powerful are you that when you make a decision like that, everybody jumps into action. But the idea is here, why does Luke include, besides that it happened, why does Luke
1: include that detail? Because he's setting he's, he's setting up a comparison. Who's the king at the time? Who are you going to call Lord? So we have Caesar Augustus. Now, again, it's a framing.
0: You're framing the idea of we want to understand in God's kingdom who's king. And that's going to be a powerful thing we'll look at over the next few weeks. So let's look
1: real briefly at Caesar Augustus. He was emperor for 40 years or so.
0: It's over math for Marines, it's more than 10 fingers and 10 toes. So I'd have to. I have to do a little bit more calculation, but it's over 40 years. Now, he's not, his name isn't Augustus. His name was Gaius Octavius. That's what he's, his born name. He's given the title Augustus. So even though we refer to him as Caesar Augustus, that's not really his name. Just like Jesus Christ, Christ isn't his last name. It's Jesus the Christ, which is. Now, telling you his title, he's the anointed one of God. Minor detail, but important when we we want to recognize that he's telling everybody that he's the worshipped one. And for, for good reason, he played it well, because for 40 years, the Roman Empire, the, the economy grew, there were wars ended, everything was wonderful, and he kept saying, it's because of me, I bring order to the chaos of the world around you. And I'm the one who should be
1: worshipped as a god. Caesar Augustus had many official, well, let's just look at him. Caesar Augustus, he was considered divine. He's divinity. They call him Lord. He's
0: called Savior. I'll show you that in a minute, an inscription from, from uh, 9 B.C. He calls himself the Son of God. He's the son of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar dies and ascends up into the heavens. This is their theological theology of the imperial cult. And if Julius Caesar ascended to be a god, that makes Augustus the Son of God. So he calls himself the Son of God. And, I'll show you in a minute, his birth is referred to as the good news for the world. Now, right there, now you know why God sent Jesus at that moment. Why not 50 years earlier or 50 years later? Because on the ground, in charge at the time, over Jerusalem, was a guy who called himself Lord, Savior, Son of God, and his birth was considered the good news. And so both Jesus and the Bible writers are going to turn that upside down and say, oh no, that's not true. Why at that time did God send Jesus? It's a uh, that's kind of a miss. We won't necessarily know the full answer, but it's this is part of an idea of why show up at that particular time. Okay, so look back at Luke, and I want to show you something. So you have Caesar Augustus. This is being this is now the introduction to Caesar, and what I want you to do is just bounce down from in Luke two down to verse ten and eleven, because. When the angels speak to the shepherds, they're going to say everything about Jesus that the imperial cult, the cult of the Caesars, say about the Caesars. So, verse 10 says, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. That's a, the imperial cult is using the good news business. That will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, notice in the town of David is a royal, that's Bethlehem, it's going to be, that's where the royalty, the the Messiah is going to come from.
1: A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So, in this little sentence, you have somebody who's going to be called Lord.
0: You have someone who's going to be called Savior. Someone whose birth is the good news for the world. Good news for all the people. Well, these are all the same things that, that Caesar Augustus is claiming. Now, let me just ask you this. If you've never heard this before, just realize who's still around being worshipped and changing lives for the better. It's not Caesar Augustus. Well, okay, there are, there are, in, in the poli- there are politicians who will make the claim in their, in their messianic thinking that they're the ones who bring order to the chaos. But Jesus is still the one. So it's everything had to be flipped on its head to say who's king. Last one is this business of Messiah, right? So they're naming him the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And that's going to be important that we we pick up on this as we go down the road. Okay, that's remarkable that you could say all those titles are, or all of those things are said about Caesar And they're also what we say about Jesus. All right, so let's... I'm going to take one step back, and I don't think I put this on your sheet. I want to show you one one thing about good news,
1: the Greek word that's used for good news. That Greek word, it's been used for a long time.
0: For instance, Homer, who wrote the Odyssey and the Iliad, Homer used the phrase good news as a gift from the gods. So when, when, the, when Jesus shows up and says the good news is here, repent, it's because God is acting. He's still using it in the context of the culture around them. Something has happened from the gods, and it's good news. So it goes way back. In the Old Testament, you have a verse in Isaiah. Isaiah 52.7, which is how beautiful are the feet that come across the mountains, who deliver the good news, the good tidings. And it's the good news. And what's the good news? Your God reigns Israel. So it's, uh, again, you have... The context of that idea of good news goes way back. It's picked up by the imperial cult. So they're not... um, they are not just making it up. It's something that's used in that culture to talk about a gift from the gods, and that's what they're saying Augustus is, that the imperial cult is the good news for the world, which it wasn't. And then finally, you get Jesus' birth, of course. That's what we call the good news, Jesus' birth, but also the subsequent message that God's plan for salvation is acting in the world through his son, Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins, for, the del- for your deliverance, all of that. So you can connect. When we connect Old Testament to New, you connect Isaiah to the birth of Jesus. But just understand, in the Roman Empire, good news is used on both sides of the coin, pagan and in the Bible. And that's just important to recognize that when you say those words, it comes with all kinds of meaning that you're already aware of. That said, now we're going to take you to uh, an archaeological find that talks about Caesar Augustus. And we've looked at this one before, so it's review. This is number eight on your handout. And what it is, I'll show you, there's a city in Turkey called Priene. So that first word, Priene, and it's a calendar inscription. And what they're saying, the, the, the folks who are in Asia Minor, which is where Ephesus and Pergamum and Sardis and uh, Laodicea are all Asia Minor, what they're saying is, we want to restart our calendar and start counting time from the birth of Caesar Augustus.
1: Now just think about that for a minute. How do we reckon our years well, if you follow the Julian calendar,
0: as some in the East still do, that's from Julius Caesar, right? Julius Caesar started the Julian calendar, but we reckon our time from the birth of Jesus. So there we basically did the same thing that they're asking to do for Caesar Augustus. It was a significant event to say there's a dawning of an age that gets marked right here. So if we go just on a map real quick, I'll show you the city of Ephesus, so we all know. Paul was at Ephesus. There's the city of, or the letter to the Ephesians. About 20 miles south of the city of Ephesus sits a city called Priene. And no record of anything in the New Testament of happening there, but Paul, is, Paul and John are all over the place in that area. So it's highly likely that they would have known the people at Priene. And there's a Jewish community there. So I'll show you that uh, the synagogue in a second. Well-built city don't have time to show you all the cool stuff, the marketplace and the temple to Athena and all the cool stuff. But it's it's an amazing city. Um, And then this right here is a Jewish synagogue. So we know there was a community of Jews there. They found—it doesn't look like a synagogue, of course. It was a small house, but they found this menorah inscribed there.
1: So that's a famous menorah find at Priene. So we know, since we know there's a Jewish community
0: there, then it's likely John or Paul engaged them at some level, and there may have been an early Christian community there too. Where I want to show you is this house right here, small little building, and what they found in there is an inscription. It's an inscription that talks about Caesar Augustus. It's, uh, you can read all about the inscription. I gave you the Wikipedia. There's a whole Wiki, Wikipedia page for the pre-NA Calendar inscription. That's a picture of of what it is in um in in the museum. But you can go and read all about this and read the whole story behind it. All right. So let me show you a couple things. And these are on your handout. And I gave you a little bit more than I'm showing you here, mostly just because of space. But so I'll read it from your handout, which is not on the screen right now. But since Providence, so they're, they're going to give the credit of Augustus' birth to the, the goddess Providence. So since Providence has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our lives, has set in most, set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus. Now that's where we just started. So Providence gives you Augustus whom she filled with virtue for the benefit of humanity. So Augustus Augustus is filled with all the virtues. Why? For the benefit of humanity. And in her beneficence has granted us, and those who will come after us, a Savior. So there's the calling him Savior. He made war to cease, and he put everything in perfect order, right? So All of the kings claim that they're the savior. It's like the Messiah complex. I can put things in order. I can stop all bad things from happening in your life until you realize they can't. So, this is how the calendar starts out, the inscription starts out. You go down a little bit more, and then it gets to the good news. So, whereas Caesar, when he was manifest, so when he was born, he transcended all the expectations of all who anticipated the good news. So there's that same Greek word we use for, in Luke. And here's the, their whole point, with the result that the birthday of our God signaled the beginning of the good news of the world, or for the world. Now that's exactly what Luke is, the angels are saying that the birth of this child is good news for all mankind. Mark starts out his gospel, first sentence. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the, the, the Christ. So they're all
1: pulling off of this. They're going to force you to make a decision. Who do you call Lord? And that's going to be a critical decision.
0: So the birthday of our God, this is what we see in Luke in the Jesus story, is called good news, at least. Now, anything that the Caesars did was called good news. They win a battle, it's the good news. They come to power, it's the good news. So, my point is this. You have somebody on the scene, Caesar Augustus, who says, I'm Lord, I'm Savior, I'm the Son of God, and my birth is the good news for the world. And then Jesus is born, and they're going to challenge every single thing about that. And Jesus is going to be Lord. And Jesus is the Savior, and Jesus is the Son of God, and His birth is the good news, and the message that comes along with it is the good news. And now you're forced into a decision, and it's not going to be comfortable at all in the first century. If you choose Jesus, what did you just say about the the uh, the emperor? He's not God. Well, they don't take that too well. So. This is a very, it's decidedly political. It's forcing you to, to make the decision of who's king. And for the people who first got these letters, or the first heard the good news, this is a big deal for them. And as we, when we looked at the book of Revelation, you have the same issue. You have a, now that Caesar's Domitian, and he's going to demand
1: that he be called God. And if you say no, well, you know, Domitian's not happy. Okay, now, all of that, so so important to
0: recognize, as they tell that birth story, it is set right against the Caesar who's in charge. So if we go back to this idea of these temples,
1: these temples that uh, Herod the Great built in the land of Israel, to say, Caesar is Lord and God. I mean, how did the Pharisees
0: deal with that? Probably not well. How would Paul have liked that one? You know, what about the zealots? No wonder they're angry. So, we go back to this temple. This is, this is one of three. There's one built at the port, Caesarea Maritime, of course, named after Caesar. Caesarea Maritime. When you enter the country of Israel, Herod the Great says, Here's who's Lord in this country Augustus. You have this one at Sebastia or in Samaria. That one along the main road. Who's Lord? Augustus. The final one, and this is the one that they found not too long ago, 1998. So just over 20 years ago, they found that looks like a pile of stones but actually is the other temple to Caesar Augustus. This is the third one. Josephus mentions there were three. That temple is at a place today we call Amrit. And it's, I'll show you where, very, it's the northern entrance to the kingdom up near the city of Caesarea Philippi. I'll show you that in a second. So at that, space right there what they think this is an artist rendering from the Israeli museum that as you'd be walking into the country you would stop off what they had found there too was a giant statue of the goddess Aphrodite cuz Caesar Augustus associated himself with the goddess Aphrodite and they had found Aphrodite the statue in a farmer's field they didn't know where it came from until they found this place and then assumed well that statue was inside
1: that temple there So anyways, you have this temple right here at Amrit to Caesar Augustus. Now,
0: Amrit, this city, sits four miles from this city, Caesarea Philippi, also named after the Caesar who gave Philip his power. So many of you have been to this. This is one of the headwaters of the Jordan River. It's absolutely amazing. That water literally comes right out of the rock, used to come out of that cave in the background. But that's where the Jordan River begins, at the base of Mount Hermon, and there's a worship, a pagan worship site there, and Philip put his capital city, Caesarea Philippi. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus walked his disciples 28 miles to Caesarea Philippi. So the question is, they must have walked by this, because it's right on the main road. So what does Jesus what are they saying to His disciples? What are the disciples saying to him about this temple to an to a, uh, emperor that's, that everyone is calling God? Great teaching lesson in that one for Jesus and His disciples, right? So now what I'd like you to do,
1: last turn in your Bible, is turn to Matthew 16 verse 13. You know, Bible time is elusive. One story ends, they're down in Capernaum.
0: Next story begins, they're at Caesarea Philippi. And you have no idea how much time elapsed. I mean, it's 28 miles to walk from Capernaum to Caesarea Philippi. So you're probably not doing it in a day. How much time elapsed between the, you know, the journey when Jesus said, Come on, guys, we're walking north. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, That's right where we looked at. Now, region of Caesarea Philippi, where, right? Well, this is four miles from Caesarea Philippi and right on the road, so they would have walked right past it. That's remarkable. And I think what you're going to hear Matthew, or I'm sorry, what Matthew records Peter is saying fits right here next to Amrit. So uh, Matthew 16, 13, when Jesus came to the region of of Philippi, he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Now, why would he be asking that question? Well, one, because he wanted to ask that question, but two, there's a temple right behind you that says that the Caesar is Lord and Son of God. So you can compare. Again, culturally, you've got these, they're, they're right next to each other. And then look at verse 16. And I think this is the clue that kind of gives it away. Then Simon Peter, right? This is... Peter's famous declaration, "You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God." Now why? Why include that word if you're Jewish? You don't have to tell you don't have to tell Jesus that he's it's a living God? Well, if you're standing next to the the if maybe Jesus stopped along the way right by that temple and said, "Who do people say that I am?" and Peter says, "You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God." The God that's alive, not Julius Caesar who died. And at that point, it would have been Tiberius. But Tiberius said, I'm the son of God because Augustus, uh, you know, ascended to heaven. And the whole thing is supposed to trickle downhill with every successive Caesar. So I think there's something here where Peter says, it's the living God. Ah, not that dead God over there in the Amrit, in the not the one here at this temple. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God which really, again, it makes it such a pointed comparison if we can culturally see what's right there near Caesarea Philippi. Now, there's a whole bunch else to that story, so don't reduce it to that, but that's a big one right here if we missed that. And frankly, we would have missed it. Every scholar would have missed it until 1998 when they found the place, and then maybe a few years after, as they figured out what the heck they were looking at. So this is amazing discoveries that are happening while we're alive that help add to the context of what's being said in the Bible. Okay, let's finish this up. Here's the question. Who do you call Lord? And you can ask this same question today. The moment people start calling a politician Lord, things are going to start going badly. And that happens all over the world. North Korea calls their the father, then the second father, now the son, a, a deity. They're the ones that hold, bring order to the chaos. It's like, uh, nope. So who do you call Lord? Well, in Jesus' day, is it Caesar or is it Jesus? And that could be a life and death answer. Well, it is a life and death answer, but it could be a physical life and death answer. This is really an important question. Another way to phrase it, and this is where I want to go in the future weeks, who's king? Right? Right? Is it Domitian? Maybe at the time Luke is writing, is Domitian the Caesar? Is he the king, the true king? Or is it Jesus the Christ, the anointed one? And what does it mean to be king? And that's one of the things we want to explore over the next couple weeks. If Jesus is the Christ, what do we mean by Christ? Or what do we mean by king? Second, what does it mean that he's born to all people? How can we interpret that? In light of our spirituality today. And then finally, ultimately, we have to say, what does it mean for us, right? I'm a Christian, a little Christ. I'm a little king, or I'm a little anointed one. What does it mean that I'm a little anointed one? How do I live out? Once I become a Christian, say I have faith in in Jesus, or I have faith in God through Jesus, then what? What do I have to do? How do I transform myself? To become a little Christ in a world where today still human beings will call themselves not in specific religious terms, but they want to be king. They want to be the Messiah.
1: Okay, this is where we're going. Now next week, I'm going to show you something. God willing,
0: I'll be able to present it well enough. It's, mis- it's a mystic. Uh, he's a mystic. And... Anytime you get to uh, any kind of mystical teaching means it's mystical. So, you know, you kind of have to hold it loosely. This is a guy named Meister Eckhart. And he lived, well, 1260 to, to 1328. It's a, it was a tumultuous time. A lot of history has been a tumultuous time. Um, he was a Dominican friar, also called the Black Friar. So notice his, in the artwork, he's got the black cloak on. He was a prominent theologian, very popular, but he would tend to go off on his mystical ideas in his uh, sermons, and he spoke his, he did his sermons in German, which normally they were done in Latin, so he became very popular with the people. They loved it. Well, what happens when you get a popular preacher uh, and the church people at the top don't like your mystical ideas? Well, you start to call him a heretic, and he had all kinds of accusations and very recently the catholic church has had a movement to come back and say no no we need to reclaim Meister Eckhart's name you know he's not a heretic anyways so i'm going to show you his his ideas about the christmas story and um they're very much in line with jewish mysticism too so it's it's interesting anyways we'll do this next week it's it's very interesting but it comes from an old teaching and on the, on the level of mysticism, which, you know, they always warn a teacher not to teach too much about on the level of mysticism, but we'll go there anyways, at least dip our toe in it. All right, so that'll be next week. Then the week, we'll, we'll from that, we'll jump again, take, the, take this idea that Meister Eckhart has, we'll jump again to say, what does it mean for us to become a little king, a little anointed one? And then... How can we then apply the Bible to our life to live that out in a way? So we'll do that in the next couple of weeks. All right. Lots of information. Lots going on in that first century. Really helpful to, to go back and dig into that context. You know, we abstract the stories. We tell them. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes we miss something about the punch of the story that was happening in the first century. Oh, by the way, let me add one last note. Just so you realize what happened.
1: When Jesus was born, Caesar Augustus is on the throne. Everything's going swimmingly. The
0: empire is at the top of its game. Well, when Caesar Augustus dies, basically everything just goes downhill from there. Tiberius took over. He was the Caesar when Jesus was crucified. When Tiberius died, then you get Caligula. He was a madman. He's certainly not God incarnate, although he wanted to force the Jews to put his statue inside the temple at Jerusalem. Caligula's gone, you have Claudius, then Nero, Nero was a madman, then you have this crazy year where there's four Caesars, and then you get Vespasian, and that's what we were talking about during the Revelation. Vespasian, his son Titus, who destroyed the temple in in Jerusalem in 70 AD, and then another madman named Domitian. So what you can see, when, the, when Luke's letter goes out, the good news, all the great stuff that was supposedly happening, supposed to happen under all these emperor, emperors, people were beginning to realize was completely false. So the message of the good news of Jesus lands at a time when people realize that the emperors can't do what they're claiming that they can do. They can't stave off the chaos of the world they can't stave off suffering so it's it's got a there's a primed place for that message to land which i think is why everything exploded as it did so anyways just the last point all right let me stop the share okay there's everybody